Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we have our second entry in the Roger Moore Bond films with The Man with the Golden Gun. James Bond is led to believe that he is targeted by the world's most expensive assassin while he attempts to recover sensitive technology that is being sold to the highest bidder. Whoa. That's a very dramatic synopsis. It's a little bit more involved than our first Roger Moore entry. I've got to give him credit for that. They went more complex with the plot. Yes, and like more real Bond film. This felt like the same type of story that they would have sent Sean Connery on. Because like when we got George Lazenby, it was a completely different type of Bond adventure. And Sean Connery commented like, well, I would have liked to do a movie like that. And so now we have a new Bond, and the last film was like a hot mess of racism and just bad. And this one feels more like the type of script and storyline and villain that they would have given a a Sean Connery. I think it's the villain that is the key point on this movie. Because I do feel like this movie's still kind of a hot mess. Let's be real. It's not a hot steaming pile of garbage, but it is definitely messy. Yeah. And what saves it is a very classic Bond villain. Yeah, totally. That's, I think, the key that brings this movie back together. And as we find out, may have basically saved the franchise. The budget for this movie was $7 million. Mm-hmm. Its US total gross was $20,972,000. Its total worldwide gross was only $97,600,000, making it one of the lowest grossing Bond movies of all time mm-hmm. and nearly made it the final Bond film. This one. I'm surprised it wasn't the last one. Well, this is the film that ultimately began to destroy Harry Saltzman and Albert Broccoli's partnership. Salty Broccoli aren't friends anymore. Harry Saltzman sold his rights to United Artists after the release of this film. So there's no more Salty Broccoli after this? Just regular broccoli. Just regular broccoli? Mm -hmm. No butter? No garlic? Just broccoli? What can we come up with for United Artists? Um, I'm gonna. This is gonna bother me a lot. <laughs> to an inappropriate degree. No more. Yeah. Huh. He incurred so many financial difficulties after this film. He specifically, the Broccoli family, stayed fine. No, because I I know the Broccoli family is still owns all of this. Because their names are still all over the Daniel Craig films. You may also recall that when we talked about You Only Live Twice, this was supposed to be the follow-up film. Okay. At the time, they wanted to do this as the next Bond movie. Okay. And have Roger Moore step into the role as one of the candidates. So they expected this to be the first outing of a new Bond. If Sean Connery decided to leave. Yeah, I mean, sure. there were it was still up in the air a bit. But they were pretty sure Connor yeah, was going. They, okay. And the reason that this didn't get made was because they planned on filming in Cambodia. Okay. It was 1967-68. Mm-hmm. What was happening in Cambodia or adjacent the Vietnam War? Yeah, no thank you. So they scrapped those plans, moved it over to Switzerland for On Her Majesty's Secret Service, mm-hmm. and then 
we know the rest. You can go listen to our episode talking about Lazenby and the whole saga with that. This never happened to the other fella. We're in the place where we're always going to be comparing to other things now. Like, truly? Because now that I've watched all of Sean Connery and now I'm in the Roger Moore. I know. I don't remember any of the Brosnan, really. <laughs> and let's be clear. At a certain point, you're not going to be able to compare them anymore because they are two... Just become complete... such different things. They're just different types of movies. Roger Moore is so much about suave, debonair, jokes, puns, and gadgets. I like all these things. It is a much sillier but fun Bond adventure. Which, okay, but like I can have that comparison in my brain between Brosnan and Craig. They're two completely different Bonds. One is more of a cartoon character and one is like a true assassin. All right, let's move on to our writing. Okay. So first, this was actually the final Bond novel that Ian Fleming wrote before he passed away. Okay. And it was published posthumously. In his correspondence, he stated that he was not pleased with this final product. And having published it, he was considering retiring from James Bond because he felt he had, quote, lost the edge. Hmm. Our two writers from Live and Let Die, Tom Mankiewicz, mm-hmm. and from every other Bond movie, Richard Maybaum. Oh, thank God. <laughs> That's why it's not horrible. This is possibly the least faithful script to any of Ian Fleming's novels. Okay. They completely changed around every setting, every possible thing. They completely overhauled Scaramanga's character from the book. Mm -hmm. In the book, he is much more of a rough and tumble in the shadows type of guy. Okay. And in this, clearly he is a gentlemanly... He's he's a carny kid. (laughs) It's a weird-ass backstory. Now, that is in the novel. But the way they execute it in the film it doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense because of who we cast and how we had him portrayed. <laughs> and there's no acrobatics. If there was acrobatics, it might make sense. Oh, you want him to be Dick Grayson? If he was Dick Grayson, it would work, wouldn't it, though? Like a fancy British Dick Grayson? I'm fine with him being a carny kid because I do think the beginning effect of him shooting a fake James Bond is cool. That's fun because we know it's like actually Roger Moore standing there pretending to be the fake Bond. That's fun. But it's just such an obvious call to how he's going to kill him at the end. And we didn't see enough of him being like this awesome trick shooter. Like we just didn't get that. Oh, there's a lot of just massive yeah, threads just, left untied. Yeah, like, and there's a lot of there's a lot there they could have done, and they just there didn't is. do it. I'm glad that they did what they did because it yeah. was way better than how they dealt with live and let die. Basically, just leaving Yafet Koto out to dry to figure out how to make that character work, and God knows he did so much to try to make that character good. Yeah. But. Maybaum had written some much longer sequences. He mm-hmm. had a longer Q scene with a crazy camera with tons of gadgets that Q would have to finally admit really could only take pictures. I always <laughs> want a longer Q scene. Always. The producers were still not down with the gadgets just yet. And they weren't realizing what the marketing opportunity was. I can tell you now that's going to get fixed. Thank the Lord. Because in some of these later movies, it becomes literally the only thing that's going on. He also had a much longer final battle with Scaramanga, Mm -hmm. but it didn't make it into the final script. 
And Mankiewicz actually had a decent idea with this script. Okay. He wanted to write it as this huge struggle just between Bond and Scaramanga. Mm -hmm. Like, he wanted it to just be man against man, spy against spy, Uh this whole fight. But he had a falling out with the director, Guy Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And in dealing with it and not having enough fun for Guy Hamilton's taste, I think... Wound up walking away from the project, which is why Maybaum takes over and finishes off the script. Probably to the good of the series, but I don't hate that idea of this movie. There's no environmental Solex MacGuffin involved. Yeah, it's just spy versus spy. Yeah. I'm cool with that. This is also one of two Bond films to deal with environmental themes mm-hmm. that would not return until Quantum of Solace. Solace. But when Bond says the energy crisis is still with us, that was very, very real to most people watching Mm -hmm. the movie in Britain. They had not come out of the energy crisis by 1974. With the oil crisis and the unrest in the Middle East, this was actually something people were talking about. Mm -hmm. Weirdly, in a cartoony way, this is kind of relevant today. Our director, Guy Hamilton. Mm -hmm. This would be his final Bond film course we talked about he brought us goldfinger he brought us diamonds are forever he brought us live and let die i don't know diminishing returns i feel yes (laughs) that's an understatement i mean like okay but like after goldfinger where do you go you don't you just say i'm good Mm -hmm. bye according to roger moore Hamilton really wanted to toughen up bond in this film okay he was really making the effort And so we get the scene where he pushes Anders' arm behind her back and threatens to break it. He pushes the kid into the water from the boat. Okay, that's funny. Roger Moore said, though, he hated filming those scenes. I understand pushing the, like, hurting the lady is just hurting the lady. The kid, I can understand as an actor just worrying about the child. But for the scene, it's actually really funny for him to push the kid out of the boat. So it's funny, but it doesn't fit into Moore's characterization of Bond. That's, I think, the problem. If Connery was doing it, I'd buy it in a heartbeat. See, I do buy it from Roger Moore's because he's a little more, I want to say relaxed. So for me, when I see him in a more heightened situation, him being like, get out of my way. Like, I'm I'm sorry, kid. I'm afraid I have to owe you. Like, it doesn't bother me, but yeah, I don't like the arm and the lady thing. That's not good. They wanted to film this in Iran. Okay. But the Yom Kippur War was going on, so they moved the entire thing to Thailand. Harry Saltzman was actually very happy they wanted to film in Thailand, as he always wanted to go on vacation there. (laughs) The man went into financial straits after this movie. I will remind you after every note we talk about him. Okay. (laughs) This is some ominous foreshadowing. I don't have details, but I can, from the vibes I'm hearing, I'm like, you went off the rails and just spent all your damn money. It happens a lot. And Guy Hamilton adapted an idea of his involving Bond in Disneyland for Scaramanga's Funhouse. That explains so much in terms of the art direction of that those scenes. So much. Like, we're watching him go, like, the first time where he's going through, like, the set and, like, they're 
shoot him up. And I was just like, are we at Six Flags? What the hell is this place? It's a neat concept. Yes. It's that gets ruined epic. by, and I don't want to say design because Peter Merton was acting off of Guy Hamilton's orders. No, but like I, the execution of the scene is horrible. And that all goes back to Guy Hamilton. Yes, totally. Like, the art direction, like, if you say Disney World and this is what it is, I totally get that from, like, that's your inspiration, this is what we're doing, 100%. But the execution of all of it is just not good. The thing I hate is the robots with the cowboy and the Al Capone bit, and then... The sort of Vincent Priceness of the yeah. creepy of doorway the stuff. Yeah. There's a way to do that better. Once we get into the Hall of Mirrors, then it gets better. Yes. Because then it is a tension release game of what are you really seeing? Who's in front of you? Who's behind? Totally. Yeah. Our cast. We're going to start with Roger Moore. Hey, Roger Moore. Big shock. So Roger Moore and Christopher Lee were actually very close friends from early in their careers. Okay. So funny they were playing rivals in this, but they've always been really good friends. On location in Thailand, Moore found a bat cave. And when he returned, he found Christopher Lee and joked to him, Master, they are yours to command. (laughs) Because Christopher Lee, as we'll find out, has some connections with bats in his acting career. Moore apparently is a great prankster as well. He wrote fake dialogue for Q (laughs) in Desmond Llewellyn's first scene back to the franchise, (laughs) gave it to the script girl, and Llewellyn had spent a month memorizing all of his lines and was about to walk on set. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay, that's mean and hilarious, and I kind of love it. I can't imagine how real Desmond Llewellyn's eye rolls at Bond are the entire time Roger Moore's there doing bits. Roger Moore and Albert Broccoli, he was friends with both Saltzman and Broccoli, but obviously stayed friends with only one of them. They routinely hit roulette tables in between takes. During the belly dancing sequence, Roger Moore had a brand new suit on. Mm-hmm. Albert Broccoli, as a prank, got up on a ladder and poured a bucket of paste all over the brand new suit after the take was done. Oh, I'm sure he loved that. This is a set full of pranks, apparently. Like, don't you have work to do? I don't know. And this movie started filming so soon before Roger Moore was actually available. A double was used for him when they started filming in November 1973, and he did not arrive until April of 74. What the fuck? That's such a waste of money and time. I don't think it is, because they're using the double for any of the exterior sequences, other characters talking. You can get a huge role on production if you've got a good double. He's not having to say any of those lines, and then you just ADR him over. Ugh, it's just messy. When you don't have CGI, I know, but st- no, and you're running low on budget, they're wasting their budget. Sounds like. All right, moving on to Christopher Lee as Francisco Scaramanga. This is not the first time we have mentioned Christopher Lee on the show, but this is the first time we have seen a movie that he is in. So he is a longtime character actor and all-around bad guy. Yep. 
That's his bread and butter. Started his career in 1946, and I'm going to hit the highlights, which are a lot. He was in the 1948 Hamlet with Laurence Olivier, Scott of the Antarctic, Captain Horatio Hornblower RN, Alexander the Great, A Tale of Two Cities, Corridors of Blood, The Hound of the Baskervilles, and he went to go play Sherlock Holmes several times on television. Mm -hmm. The City of the Dead, Crypt of the Vampire, The Castle of the Living Dead, She, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and like 18 other Dracula movies. That was his bread and butter through the 60s and 70s. Rasputin, The Mad Monk, The Magic Christian, The Wicker Man, which he is maybe most well known for breaking out. And The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers from 1973 and 1974 may be the best adaptation of that story ever. After this, he was in Diagnosis Murder, The Keeper, Airport 77, Return from Witch Mountain, 1941, The Return of the Musketeers in 1989, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, The Stupids, Sleepy Hollow, he was Saruman in the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit series. He was Count Dooku in episodes two and three of Star Wars. Oh, yeah, I forgot he was Dooku. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yes, he's Mr. Wonka. Alice in Wonderland, Birkenhair, Season of the Witch, The Resident. He has a bit part in the official sequel to The Wicker Man, The Wicker Tree, Hugo, and his last major movie was Dark Shadows. So he became a Tim Burton favorite. So in other words... He's a big effing deal. Yes. Now, we will remember him from our Bond series because he is the cousin of Ian Fleming. Oh, yeah. And Fleming offered him the role of Dr. No, which he turned down. Now, did we say we wanted that him or no? I think we had basically a no name for Dr. No. So I think we basically said Christopher Lee is an upgrade from pretty much everybody that's fair it's kind of hard to argue anybody else but him as a bad guy he wore full body makeup to appear to have a tan it's 1974 it's a waste of money go outside damn it i i know i know he did claim that this is one of his favorite roles of all time and christopher lee actually had a short stint with the british secret service and learned several languages including swedish so, offset, he would speak Swedish with Britt Eklund and Maud Adams. Oh, nice, nice. We do have a who could have been better. Oh, really? Jack Palance. Oh, curly. But back in the day. Oh, I know. Narrow-eyed bad guy. He's a great narrow-eyed bad guy. Jack Palance would have been interesting. I mean, like, I like Christopher Lee, but Jack Palance would have been interesting. I think it's a toss-up. Yeah, I'd have to go with the toss-up there, too. Yeah. Britt Eklund as Mary Goodnight. Ooh, this is this is one big reason this movie kind of falls on its face. She's boring as all get out. But to be fair, they did not give her any agency at oh, all. Her character is just the worst. Like, they did a better job with Money Penny in, like, the two seconds she's on screen in other films. Like, this is horrible. Oh, they they wrote her as this complete moron that like, James chastises the entire film. Yeah, like, she's only an agent because she's pretty. Yeah. Which is like, no, she can be hot and good at her job. Yeah. I understand. I, Stupid. I feel like this is the last time they were able to pull this off. And I think... You know, of many complaints, this is probably one of them. 
hey, you can't keep doing this. Like the ladies need to be their competent. own. Pe- they need to be competent and their own people yeah. because they can be just as badass. Mm-hmm. And it's way more fun to see them badass. Mm-hmm. God, even Solitaire's a better written character than this. And Solitaire's not Solitaire great. Solitaire wasn't great. Before this, she was in After the Fox, The Night They Raided Minsky's Stiletto, 1971's Get Carter, and The Wicker Man. After this, <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Um, however, she sorry, she was literally terrified during the Scaramanga Island escape. Mm-hmm. When she fell on the floor as they're running out that hallway, mm-hmm. that was real. She was not ready for how big those explosions were going to be. And Roger Moore did have to run back, grab her and pull her off the set before more of the pyrotechnics went off. Well, it looks good. So I know that that is the one moment where you're like, oh, I actually believe you're acting here. She's not acting. No, not most of the time. Mm. After finding out that Maude Adams was cast, she was incredibly upset, thinking she'd lost the role of Mary Goodnight until she found out that, oh, no, she's the other lady. I mean, it's another Swedish actress. So. I, I understand. I'm sure they're in competition a lot. And she was married at the time to another Bond, Peter Sellers. Oh, okay. Who we will learn about when we see Casino Royale, mm-hmm. 1967's Casino Royale. Yes, because there's another one. Maud Adams as Andrea Anders. Maud? <laughs> yes. Contrary to her name, she is also Swedish. Mm-hmm. She has very few roles of recognition, Mm -hmm. but the ones she's been in are pretty big. She was in The Boys in the Band and Mahoney's Estate. After this, she's in Rollerball with James Caan, Tattoo, Jane in the Lost City, but most importantly, she is the title character in Octopussy. I haven't seen that one yet, so... So, when we get around to it, we're going to revisit Maude Adams. Well, the franchise likes to reuse actors in different ways. That's so. true. How do you feel about Andrea Anders? She's better than Goodnight, at She's least. better than Goodnight, but she's so lackluster. Like, she's just the bad guy's arm candy, and she's just not interesting. The last great Bond girl we had was Diana Rigg in Majesty's Secret Service. Because she's a really good fucking actress. Yeah, she's amazing. And can actually, you know, do stuff. We haven't had anybody of any note since then. Nope. Andrea Anders is just so dull. She's just dull. There's no reason for her to be in this movie. And, like, she's not so breathtakingly beautiful that, like, you understand why James Bond is just enamored with her. Or the bad guy's just so enamored with her. It's just, she's just there. Like, good night, I found more interesting to a degree. Because she's a comedy big, Exactly, because at least she's interesting. Yeah. She's doing something poorly, but she's doing it. So, yeah. Boring. Mm. Hervé Villachez as Nick Knack. Before this, he was in Maidstone, the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Greaser's Palace, a film from Robert Downey, and Seizure, Oliver Stone's first film. Mm-hmm. After this, Forbidden Zone, Airplane 2, he was Rumpelstiltskin on Fairytale Theater. <gasps> that is him! But you will know him as Tattoo from mm-hmm. Fantasy Island. He was so poor at the time of this movie that he was living out of his car. Mm. He's lived a fascinating life. 
Yeah, didn't they do a movie about him starring Peter Dinklage? HBO recently put out a sort of biopic, adventure weird movie okay, about like, a couple of nights with him on a huge bender, basically. Okay. Because he did he was a party tons of drugs yeah. and tons of drinking okay. and was with tons of ladies. He's great. And I do really like his character. I really like him because I'm like, this guy can fuck you up. And it, he's meant to be unassuming oh yeah yeah he's just he's just a little person who's doing the butler job that's like oh no but i will fuck you up and one of the few bad guys that doesn't get killed at the end of the movie correct yeah so i really liked him and i i mean i know the writing of the character was bad but i like the character i like what he did with the character one interesting note according to hervé's accountant the gloves that they made for him had to be custom made and cost approximately ten thousand dollars cool Returning for this film, Clifton James is Sherry W. Pample. <laughs> okay, the most ridiculous character from from the last movie, but I will give them credit. The way he is in this film is very silly, and I'm okay with it. Having him along yes, for a wild-ass car chase. I've been deputized. I've been deputized. <laughs> I'm on secret mission. <laughs> I mean, okay. Sheriff J.W. Pepper, Louisiana State Police. Here's my identification. This is Law Enforcement Association, American Legion. Uh, me and my partner here. We're on a secret mission. Hey, what the hell are you doing? Hey, give me my wallet back. Pairing James Bond with that type of guy is very hilarious, and I am here for it. It's so cannonball run, and it works really well. What I really love about it is that I don't know that this would have worked with any other James Bond. The fact that Roger Moore is as smooth Mm -hmm. and clinically charming as he is Mm -hmm. against this wackadoo cartoon character, that's what actually makes it work in some weird way. Sean Connery couldn't have pulled off this chemistry. We also have the return of Bernard Lee as M, who is delightfully annoyed throughout this entire movie. Yes, it's very funny. I think he's the best part of this movie, because every time we walk in, it is like old, crusty police chief, police except, you know, he's like, stiff up. What are you doing? So if I heard correctly, Scatamanga got away. Yes, sir. The car, the sprouted wings. Oh, that's perfectly feasible, sir. As a matter of fact, we're working on one now. Thank you. Shut up. Yeah, no, it's great. Lois Maxwell is Money Penny, who in her one scene, whoo, she and James nearly get it on. He calls her darling and she's like, okay, James, let's do this right now <laughs> on the desk. I don't care. That would be great. And Desmond Llewellyn returning as Q. We get a Q branch scene, which is great. Yes. And we get one Arpon. I looked at everybody. There were some people who were interesting, but there's really only one Arpon that you would recognize, and that is playing Lieutenant Hip Soon Tech O. Now, he did a lot of television, The Final Countdown, Collision Course, Beverly Hills Ninja. There's really one thing you know him for. Mm-hmm. My, my. What beautiful blossoms we have this year. But look, this one's late. I'll bet that when it blooms, it will be the most beautiful of all. He is Fa Zhao from Mulan. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool, cool, cool. The funny thing is, knowing it as we were watching it, Mm -hmm. I heard his voice and went, if you age this guy 40 years and deepen his voice, yeah, that's her dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. That's pretty fun. I knew you'd like that one. Good. All right. We need to talk about our theme song. Oh, I don't like this one very much. Not as fun as the last one. It's really not. No. The song is performed by Lulu famous British television personality and musician. I mean, I have nothing good to say about her performance of this song. Mm-hmm. Saltzman Music Publishing Company wanted Elton John or Cat Stevens to sing it. Cool. Elton would have fucking killed it. Because Elton kills everything. Broccoli nixed the idea. Too expensive. Maybe. But Bramwell, who ran that music publishing studio, put it on record that he thought the new song was mundane. And I have to agree. Also, Alice Cooper has a song called Man with the Golden Gun. Mm -hmm. The liner notes to the album claim that it was supposed to be the song, but the producers replaced it in favor of Lulu. I did not see any confirmation from Eon Productions that this is the case. Mm -hmm. So it's Alice Cooper. He could be lying his ass off. That type of thing happens all the time. Oh, it does. Yeah. And they just don't go with it. And then... But yeah, I know. I know, but for no one to confirm it. Yeah. But also, it's Eon Production. All right, on to our gadgets and the trivia surrounding it. First mm-hmm. of all, we have the Golden Gun, mm-hmm. which is assembled from a fountain pen, which acts as the barrel, mm-hmm. screwed into a cigarette lighter, the firing chamber, a cigarette case as the handle, and a cufflink, which acts as the trigger. Mm. This was manufactured by John Steers. He's the guy who won the Oscar for, I think, Thunderball. Okay. But has done all the giant special effects for these movies that were like, oh, shit, these are impressive. The gun is limited to one bullet, as we know. Mm -hmm. But it was fashioned from actual tobacco and men's accessories. Yeah. And it was built off the premise that KGB agents actually had mini one-shot twenty-two caliber guns in cigarette cases in Mm -hmm. the 1950s. Scaramanga's a fancy man. He is a fancy man. A dandy, if you will. Hmm, yes. We have the gold bullets built by Lazar. They flatten upon impact because they're made of solid gold. That makes sense. The fake nipple that Bond uses for his disguise. Oh, God. This is the stupidest character thing ever. <laughs> God. <laughs> The Solex Agitator, a device that enables the utilization of solar energy as a power source on an industrial scale. Scaramanga's solar power plant. The RMS Queen Elizabeth, a fully operational MI6 facility in the wreck of the Queen Elizabeth. The funny thing was, the Queen Elizabeth had sailed for decades. It was, at the time, the largest cruise liner. And then they moved it to Hong Kong as a floating university. So it actually lived in that harbor until arsonists set it on fire in 1972 and destroyed it. The industrial laser cannon that uses the Solex agitator's power. Here's a fun bit. It fires an invisible laser beam because they didn't have the money to do a golden beam of laser light that the script called for. That's fair. (laughs) That's some Doctor Who level shit right there. Yeah, that's Doctor well, we have no money. Let's it's make it invisible. invisible. <laughs> Wowzers. <laughs> I'm going to use my mind. 
<laughs> we get the tracking device that was used to track Scaramanga's flying car. The fun palace that was filled with replicas of historic figures. Mm-hmm. Now, I found it funny that you mentioned Roger Moore. That's an actual wax figure of Bond. Is it? It is an actual wax figure. Okay. The cowboy dummy is Roger Moore's actual double okay. with a handlebar mustache. Okay. And then Al Capone and the gangsters were actual actors. Okay. I'm wondering if Tussauds did the Roger Moore. I have no idea, but I would have to imagine they did. It would not surprise me to find out that they did. Yeah. Now I'm going to have to go research that because it's going to bother me. And finally, the airplane car. (laughs) The airplane car. Uh Uh-huh. Just a car with an airplane attachment, you know. Like you do. Well, a pair of wings, tail section, and a turbine jet that attaches to his AMC Matador Coupe. Sure. You know, I'm not going to lie. In thinking about it, yes, it's bizarre and it seems silly. But then when you think about how they structured it, they put a jet, two wings that attach to some kind of clips on the car. I was like, no, you could probably make that work if you really thought through it long enough. No, there's somebody who's figured out how to make that a thing (laughs) somewhere. And it's like, I just don't have the money to build it. That's fine. It's just like, really? <laughs> really? You're a super villain. You don't just have a plane. I love the note that Wikipedia gives of enables his vehicle to fly large distances. Whoa. <laughs> Thank the, you, Wikipedia. The genius of this was they created it entirely through editing. The driving on the road mm-hmm. is simply, it's a mock-up with a car and an engine and stuff like that, but it's not functional. And then when you see it in the sky... It is an air-controlled radio model. That's cool. I'm I'm here for it. That John Stearns built, and then it's just good yeah. photography to make it look like it's the real thing, mm-hmm. but it's actually a model in the air. Yeah, no, it's cool. So they did a really good job yes, making it did. look real. Like they flew it, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On to our remaining trivia. Mm. The island for Scaramanga's Beach, also known as Fong Na Bay, is now known widely as James Bond Island. Cool. It was actually deserted at the time of filming mm-hmm. and has now become a giant tourist attraction. Tourist, yeah. Christopher Lee's golden gun was confiscated by U.S. Customs traveling to The Tonight Show to promote the movie. Oh, that makes sense. Christopher Lee. Dodo, put it in your luggage, dude. Oh, you doofus. It was 1974. You could get away with crap like that then. I know. The car stunt. I'm shaking my head. Okay, so we have to talk about the slide whistle. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Never heard of Evil Knievel. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, why? (laughs) Why? You want to know why? Why? There is no reason why. That's unacceptable. Well, there is a reason. Let me get you through the history first. Oh, God. This stunt was actually conceived years before the production of this film. Okay. Cornell researchers looking into rollover collisions created a computer simulation of this type of barrel roll. Mm -hmm. And a stunt driver named W.J. Milligan Jr., actually created the ramps and did the stunt himself during what he called the American Thrill Show. Mm -hmm. He called it the Astro Spiral Jump and toured it around America and used AMC vehicles to do the stunt. So that is why the AMC cars were featured in the stunt because Milligan and his team 
were driving them up to that actual flip. Mm-hmm. Milligan actually approached Eon to say, I want to put it in a Bond film. We're a big deal. Okay, yeah. I want to no. promote it by using a film that I know does great chases. Sure. Absolutely. So the producers took out patents and copyrights on the stunt and said it cannot appear in another movie for two years. Okay. They actually locked it down. No, no, that that makes total sense. They want it to be iconic. And British driver Bumps Williard did it in one take off the ramp. They had eight cameras lined up so they could catch it from whatever angle Mm -hmm. they needed it. There were divers, ambulances, and cranes on standby alert. Yeah, cool. And it happened so quickly that they had to crank everything in slow motion for the film. Film to be able to be seen. And it is widely credited as the first stunt to ever use computer modeling. Oh, interesting. So, this is a big deal. No, it is. But but why? Guy Hamilton thought no one would believe a stunt like that could be real. So he thought we should punctuate it with a slide whistle. He and John Barry, the composer, mm-hmm. have both gone on record saying There's that was an incredible mistake. Thank Lord. <laughs> okay. You have redeemed yourself for this pile of garbage that you wrote. Oh, it's a bad move. But I redeem you by realizing that you made a boo-boo on something so fucking cool. The stunt. God damn it. The whole chase is great. It is. Between how fast it is because some of that's got to be the overcranking of the camera some of that's they've got to have pulled from french connection on how to make that stuff look so fast they look like they're going 80 no no and it's nuts great and then he hits that ramp and you're like holy shit and then and i and then you go why you literally ruined it you, you, you ruined it. <laughs> You know, it's like wearing a ball gown and putting on Crocs. (laughs) Just like, if no one can see it, sure. But if you show people, hey, everybody, I'm wearing Crocs. You just ruined everything. It is literally a world premiere stunt on film. And you just shit all over it. You made it a YouTube goof. (laughs) Why? All right. Fun fact, Roger Moore and Lois Maxwell were former classmates. Oh, cute. This is the first Bond film to be screened at the Kremlin. Weird. I know. (laughs) Weird. According to Roger Moore, at the end of the movie, a Russian official turned around and said of Scaramanga, who was supposed to be a former KGB agent, we didn't train him very well. (laughs) I think that's really good. (laughs) Mortal enemies can have good jokes. It was like, that's that's a solid burn. That's a great <laughs> that's a solid. That's a solid burn. The martial arts scenes were added because of how popular the genre was getting sure. in America yeah, at the no, time. I, I was like, this is Bruce Lee bait. Here's my favorite Harry Saltzman really shat the bed stories. <laughs> he really, really, really wanted an elephant stampede in this movie. Cool. I like elephants. The creative team went, no. Absolutely not. But Saltzman went and visited a trainer anyway, because he wanted it to be a full-on elephant chase in the middle of a stampede Mm -hmm. with Bond chasing Scaramanga on an elephant. It turns out that in order to run on rough surfaces, elephants need special shoes for their feet. That makes sense. Don't want to crack their feet. Don't want to hurt them. A few months later, Albert Broccoli got a call saying that his elephant shoes were ready. Saltzman had ordered 2,600 pairs. 
There is no such sequence in the film, but the man was never paid. And as of 1990, the man said that Eon Productions still owed him for the shoes. I have no words. Are you starting to understand why this man had to divest all of his interests? <laughs> I'm just trying to do the math. Okay. 2,600 divided by four. How? Like, oh my God. <laughs> like, what a fucking waste of money. Like, I thought you were going to say 24 pairs of elephant shoes because you know that, that shit was not cheap. He wanted a stampede. I, but, <laughs> but no, <laughs> not even Ringling Brothers would need that many. This franchise is amazing. <laughs> what? It's a gold mine of ridiculous stories. What were you thinking, Salty? Why? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, the Bottoms Up Club, which is a real club mm-hmm. in Thailand, kept its interior from the film until its closure in 2004. That's cool. The entire cast and crew were housed in a bordello in Thailand without realizing it. Nice. The plane that flew Bond to Scaramanga's lair, or that Bond flew, quote unquote, was actually donated by an incredibly wealthy American James Bond fan, and he only did it on the condition that he got to fly it in the movie, (laughs) which he did all the way from the US to Thailand. That's cool. John Barry had three weeks to compose the score for this film, and he considers this his worst James Bond score. I have no opinion on it's that. It's not memorable. Yeah, I was like, I don't know, whatever. And on a final note, this is the lowest body count for a Bond film in Bond history. Only six people die on screen. <laughs> well, okay. How many golden guns shall we give this movie? Well, it's not a racist pile of garbage. That's true. It's not great, but it's not like awful. I want to go two and a half. That was my thoughts. I was like, you know, it's not the worst thing I've seen. It's better than the last one. It was yeah. not good. So I'm going to be like, this is all right. And it reminds me a lot of the Sean Connery ones that were pretty decent. So two and a half, I think, is fair. When this movie is bad, it's mostly just mediocre. Mm-hmm. Like we talk about that with our Bond girls. They're kind yeah. of lackluster. Yeah. Some of our ancillary characters are lackluster. But then Roger Moore's really good in it. Christopher Lee's really good in it. All of Bond's ancillary contacts, including Lieutenant Hip, Mm -hmm. are really good. Yeah. Two and a half. I'd agree. Yeah. All right. So what's the next one? The next one is what many consider to be the return to form. Okay. It's been some time since I've seen it in full, but we shall see. It's the spy who loved me. Okay. Yeah. I've heard a lot about this one. Interesting. I think most people say this is Roger Moore's best Bond performance. Okay. He agrees with that. Okay. I'm very curious to see. I'm hoping this is our Goldfinger moment for him. Like, it's just, this is it. This is the best we're going to get. But we have four more to go after it. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, it's literally just a remake. Thunderball. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'm sorry. Anytime you say the word thunderball, I instantly start thinking of the Johnny Cash version of that song, which is fucking awesome. It's and so is great. not right for the James Bond film, but it's an awesome song. It plays. That's still maybe the best moment we've had in this entire it's Bond still series. one of the best. It is really what I told is. you. Johnny Cash. What? <laughs> It's a great song. There's a rumble in the sky and all the world can hear it call. They shudder at the fury of the mighty thunderball. Thunderball. 